after using a few Bible. This is uh, page fifteen ninety seven and continuing on to fifteen ninety eight. First Thessalonians chapter five. We'll be reading verses one through three. <clears throat> First Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, <clears throat> reading verses 1 through 3. Here now, the word of God. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly. The day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we look at this text today, we see that Paul instructs the Thessalonians regarding the suddenness of Christ's return, particularly in relation to the unbelievers. Paul instructs the Thessalonians regarding the suddenness of Christ's return, particularly in relation to the unbelievers. Now, my friends, the world tries very hard to avoid thinking about judgment. This is one of the reasons why unbelievers indulge themselves in fancies and pleasures, because they want to forget about it. They want to forget that their life is going to come to an end someday. Matter of fact, I think this is one of the reasons why the world has been so upset about the virus. I'm not trying to dismiss the seriousness of it. But I think this is one of the reasons why you've had such panic by many people. Because they've had to face their own mortality. They've had to face the fact that someday the party's going to come to an end. And particularly with the young people who are not, generally speaking, at such uh, high risk, what is interesting is that it's the young people that particularly have been so panicky. I see this uh, with regard to some of my college students, for example. But this is one of the reasons why unbelievers indulge themselves in fancies and pleasures. It's all a party. Eat, drink, and be merry. But this is also why different philosophies have sprung up. For example, Evolution, Darwinism, trying to do away with a creator. I mean, that's the whole point, isn't it? Trying to push back as far as possible into millions and billions of years back, but also trying to say that it's all just matter, it's just material. There is no spirit, there is no God. Why is this satanic lie believed and taught? Because people want to avoid the reality of having to face the God who is the creator. 
Or what about the rejection of logic, postmodernism? Well, why? Because the mind does not want to think in a consistent fashion. And so logic, you see, is by the board now. Logic has been dismissed. Any sort of logical thinking, it's all about feeling. It's all about emotion. And uh, not only because this is a rejection, of course, of, of how God has made this world, but it's also, it's also a rejection of the fact that there is a creator who has, who has uh, set this world up. And so rejection of logic. But also the sick, what we call a cyclical view of history. So a cyclical, you know what a bicycle is, children? A bicycle, it's got two wheels, right? Bicycle, bicycle. And so a cyclical view of history, just think of history starting here at the top and going around, and then it comes back to the same place, and that goes around again, and so forth. History constantly repeating itself, or even as in India, the idea of reincarnation, or the Big Bang. The Big Bang is actually a philosophy of history. You know what the Big Bang is? You have this tiny, just extraordinarily dense bit of matter. A teaspoonful is so heavy. Of course, we don't know where it came from. But anyway, but wherever it came from, what happens 15 billion, or is it 16 billion years ago? What's a billion between friends, right? It goes boom, it explodes, goes out in all directions. And then, of course, after another 15 billion or 16 billion years, it all sucks up in itself into this extraordinarily bit of dense matter. And then it repeats itself. As I say to my US history classes, that's not science but it is a philosophy of history masquerading as science. Well, that's a cyclical view of history, you see. Why? Because people want to say that there is no creator, there is no God, and there is no final judgment. That's the point. It's all a circle, you see. Cyclical view of history. So the world tries very hard to avoid thinking about judgment. Well, the ancient Thessalonians, which, of course, these were uh, Greek ethnically, the ancient Thessalonians also tried to avoid this reality of judgment. They believed in the gods of Mount Olympus. They didn't believe in the true and living God. They believed, or they, they did not believe, in the resurrection of the body. When the Apostle Paul went to Athens in Acts chapter 17 and he talked about the resurrection, there were those who mocked. What is this strange idea, the resurrection of the body? They mocked the preaching of this doctrine. They, um, they engaged, the Thessalonians engaged in buying and selling and commercial activities as if that was the big thing in life. Remember, it's a major city, metropolitan area, port city. They buy and sell and so forth. That's all there is, right? Get, get ahead. And they indulged in sensual pleasures, including sexual pleasures, as if there were no tomorrow. Well, with that as an introduction now, let us look at these three verses, these three short verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in terms of the suddenness of Christ's coming. And the first thing 
that we see is the times and seasons. The times and seasons. The, you know, when you hear the word time, there are two ways in which we can think about time. We can think about chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S, chronos. A chronometer is a fancy way of saying a timepiece, okay, measuring of time. Times, chronos, that's what we usually think of when we think about time, the, uh, the uh, uh, succession of events that, well, we have an appointment on uh, Tuesday to go to the doctor or whatever it may be, or we, we're supposed to show up for school tomorrow at 9 o'clock, chronos. But then there are also the seasons, kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S, kairos, which means those uh, decisive events, if you will. And so what you find here then is the times and the seasons, the chronos and the kairos. Or we can say how long and when, in when we say when in terms of of the general scheme of history. And so Paul here is saying, but concerning the times and the seasons, that's sort of a, an all-encompassing way to refer to time, concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, brothers, a term of affection indicating a family relation. The church is a family, brothers and sisters, Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need to be written to. Now, why is it that he says you have no need to be written to? Well, first of all, because they had already instructed Paul and, and Silas and, and Timothy, had already instructed the young church on the subject of Christ's return. And so that's one of the reasons why he's saying, well, you, you remember what we said, you know, you have no need for us to, to uh, elaborate too much on this because of that. But also you remember that the Lord Jesus himself, uh, that uh, the, the Lord Jesus himself uh, uh, talked about uh, his return. And so because of that then, because they'd already instructed the young church, because Jesus himself had talked about it, well, you have no need to be written to. In other words, he's saying, let us simply remind you of what has already been said. So of those times and seasons, verse 2, notice the sudden appearance. The sudden appearance. For you yourselves know perfectly. You yourselves know perfectly. The emphasis here is on you. You. That is say, yes, we're really talking about you, emphasis there, you know perfectly. That is to say, you already have sufficient knowledge about this, a certain knowledge with regard to the parousia, or the second coming of Christ. And then Paul, uh, uh, Paul here goes on to say, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now this term, as a thief in the night, does not mean a secret return or a rapture. There are Christians known as dispensationalists, for example, who would say that, well, 
Christ uh, is uh, going to, uh, or, or the people are going to be raptured out of this world. It's going to be a secret rapture. He's going to return for his people. Uh, maybe you remember years ago when this view was uh, about 50 years ago. It was particularly popular, and it, you know, it was the sign, a warrant, bumper sticker, warning, uh, you know, the driver may disappear at any time from this car. That's the secret rapture idea, okay? That's not what is being taught. That's an unbiblical, uh, sincerely held, but an unbiblical understanding, okay? So we're not talking about some sort of secret return or rapture in that sense where God's people get taken out of the world for, for seven years and so forth. No, the, the idea of coming as a thief in the night has to do with it being unexpected, and sudden, and we'll get to that in just a moment. So the day of the Lord, what does this mean, the day of the Lord? Well, it's been described as an eminent, E-M-I-N-E-N-T, eminent, that is to say a, a um, obvious manifestation of God, either in works of mercy or judgment. So sometimes the day of the Lord can be the Lord coming in mercy, but many times in Scripture, it's a reference to his coming in judgment. And that can be the final judgment day, which is what is being referred to here, or it can be judgments within time. The day of the Lord in terms of his coming in A.D. 70 to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Or other manifestations of God's judgment in history. And specifically, this day of the Lord, as I suggested, does then refer, does refer to the second coming. You find this in a number of places. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 13, Paul writes, each one's work will become clear for the day. We'll declare it because it is. it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Or we uh, read in, um, in uh, Philippians, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1 and verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of of Christ. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1, in 2 Timothy uh, uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 18, the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. That is to say the judgment day, that is to say the day of the Lord in the final and ultimate sense. And so it is, the, it is the parousia, or the second coming, that is being referred to here. That day, we are told, comes as a thief in the night. It comes as a thief in the night. Now, our other scripture reading this afternoon was from 2 Peter chapter 3. And in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10, Peter writes, But beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. 
the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the fire and the works that are in it will be burned up. The destruction of the world with regard to Noah was by water. This destruction will be by fire. It will come like a thief in the night. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3, we hear the words of Jesus to John. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. This idea of a thief in the night has to do with a sudden and unexpected event, a sudden and unexpected judgment. That's the point. Suddenness unexpectedness, no warning, and those who are subject to it are unprepared. Jesus again in Revelation 16, verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. A thief. It doesn't usually tell you, it doesn't usually call you ahead of time, tell you he's going to show up. That's the figure that you have there. Unexpected, sudden, destructive. I'm reminded in this regard of the events of May 6, 1937, in Lakehurst, New Jersey. As soon as I say that, I'm sure some of y'all will recognize that I'm referring to the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg children, have you seen balloons sometimes, dirigibles up in the air? Okay, blimps, okay? The Hindenburg was 800 feet long, okay? So that's like almost three football fields long, which I think about that. That's a big airship, the Hindenburg. And it was making a trip from Germany across the Atlantic to America, it was having trouble landing because there were there were storms in the area and so forth. Finally, the captain decided it was time to land. And you have to remember the Hindenburg had um, hydrogen rather than helium, and as a result of that, it was very flammable. Okay, it was very flammable. If you were on board this, you weren't supposed to smoke, for example, except in one room, a smoking room, where it had negative pressure so that no sparks could be there or anything. So here comes this huge 800-foot-long airship into land at Lakehurst, New Jersey. And there were, there were films, there were cameras there, newsreels, and there was a man on the radio by the name of Herbert Morrison. Let me just read you. A little bit of the transcript. It's starting to rain again. It's the rain has slacked up a little bit. The back motors of the ship are holding it just just enough to keep it from it burst into flames. Get this, Charlie. Get this, Charlie. It's fire and it's crashing. 
It's crashing terrible. Oh, my leg. Mike, get out of the way, please. It's burning and bursting into flames. And, the, and it's falling on the mooring mast. And all the folks agree that this is terrible. This is one of the worst catastrophes in the world. It, it's the, the flames, oh, four or 500 feet into the sky. And it, it's a terrific crash. Ladies and gentlemen, it's smoke. And it's flames now. And the frame is crashing to the ground. Oh, the humanity and all the passengers screaming around here. It's just laying there, a mass of smoking wreckage. Oh, everybody can hardly breathe and talk and the screaming. I, I, I can't. I, listen, I, folks, I, I'm going to have to stop for a minute because I've lost my voice. This is the worst thing I've ever witnessed. Now that is a sudden catastrophe. And that gives you a small hint, a small picture of the catastrophe, of the judgment that is suddenly coming upon this world. And that's why Paul goes on to say, having talked about the sudden appearance, he talks about the sudden destruction. For when they shall say peace and safety, when they shall say peace, and safety. You see, when while they say, it's an interesting term, isn't it? While they say, you see, unbelievers, unbelievers assure themselves and others that they're really okay. They talk, they're really okay. There's no judgment coming. It's like we saw in 2 Peter 3. They, people mock this. Things are just going to continue. Or things will keep on repeating themselves. There's no judgment coming. They shall say peace and safety. But there's also the idea here of false prophets. Those who speak false words. When they say peace and safety. Of course, we find this, this theme in a number of places in Scripture. Uh, for example, in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop as goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife, who children, you remember, turned into a pillar of salt. So when they say peace and safety, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord is these. We have the temple. We have, the, we have all of the all the tra religious trappings, 
as Jeremiah says, when they say peace and safety, there will be no peace and there will be no safety. Because sudden destruction comes upon them. Sudden destruction comes upon them. In Luke chapter 21, verse 34, Jesus says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you. You know, uh, also in the, the second epistle of Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 9, we again see this concept of destruction, ruin, and death. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 9. These, that is say, those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Then sudden destruction, just like that Hindenburg airship, Sudden destruction, ruin, death will come upon them. But Paul goes on to say, as travail upon a woman with child. Now, the pangs of childbirth can come fairly suddenly. And we men can, do not speak from experience on this, but we understand that these are the most intense of pains in nature. Women are always better at handling pain, I think, than we men are. But certainly that is true in terms of childbirth. The pangs of childbirth, the pain associated with it, the extreme of misery, the extremity of misery, that's the picture that you have here. As travail upon a woman with child, and then the final warning, and they shall not escape. Now, Indiana Jones may get out alive, but my friends, that's fiction. They who are not in Christ shall not escape. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and following, John writes, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded, split apart as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of whom it sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Cover us up, earth. Because we can't stand the blazing eyes of the Lord as he comes in judgment. They shall not escape. Amos chapter 5, 
talking about the day of the Lord, although I think this perhaps is, is temporal judgment in this case, but the principle is the same. In Amos uh, chapter 5, in Amos chapter 5, the prophet says, chapter 5, verse 19, Actually, verse 18, woe to, you, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Oh, we escaped the lion. We escaped the lion. All of a sudden you turn around, there's the bear. Or as though he went into the house, so he escapes the lion, escapes the bear. Can you just hear him panting? I finally escaped, I escaped the lion, I escaped the bear, I get into the house, he leans his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. He can't escape. That's the picture of the day of the Lord. Well, by way of application this afternoon, there are several things I want to say. Number one. Be aware of the teaching of the Bible regarding the last things. Be aware, be aware, be knowledgeable of the teaching of the Bible regarding the last things. As we have talked about previously, reject the idea of soul sleep, psychopanachia, technical fancy term, soul sleep, the idea that when a person dies, well, he's just in some sort of comatose state. No, Jesus said, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but to die in your sins, as Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, to die in your sins means that even then you are in punishment. So reject the idea of soul sleep, but also reject the notion of dispensationalism. The teaching that Israel and the church are radically different, the idea that there are different ways of salvation, the notion that there will be a secret rapture, we referred to that earlier, and the belief that Jesus will have to be rescued by his Father by fire from heaven, rather than the fact that he is now the king who sovereignly rules from heaven and will return for his people. So be aware of the teaching of the Bible with regard to the last things and do not adopt false understandings. That's number one. Number two, do not neglect the biblical teaching regarding the destruction of the wicked. Do not neglect the biblical teaching regarding the destruction of the wicked. It will be sudden. It will be certain. And it will result in their being cast into hell forever. Number three, be warned that the wicked will be overthrown in their pride. Be warned that the wicked will be overthrown in their pride. Number four, do pay attention to the important things in life. What are these important things? Not how much money you make, not how much, uh, what, what wonderful education you're going to get, what pleasures you're going to have, how many toys you're going to accumulate children. Do pay attention to the important things in life, namely your relationship with God and your very soul. 
because there is a day coming, a judgment day. And number five, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Some of us are old enough to remember many pearl, many pearl, grand old opera. She was a, a great storyteller, great comedian. She used to wear a, children, she used to wear a, a, a straw hat with, uh, with the price tag hanging down. That was her, that was her signature, her signature uh, way of dress. But, you know, she did a recording once. She was, so she was a comedian, she was a funny lady, but she did a recording once about if Jesus came to your house. Let me just read a few lines of this poem. If Jesus came to your house to spend some time with you, if he came unexpected, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honored guest, and all the food you'd give him would be the very best. And you would keep assuring him you're glad to have him there, as serving him in your home is joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door with arms outstretched in welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they've been? And I wonder, if the Savior spent a day or two with you, would you go right on doing the things you always do? Would you go right on saying the things you always say? Or would life for you continue as it does from day to day? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet your closest friends? Would you hope they stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when he at last was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus came in person to spend some time with you. And that poem challenges all of us because we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, children, when he comes back, he's not going to be here just for a day or two. And we're not going to have to worry about the magazines anymore. He's going to be here forever and ever, but are we going to be ready for him to come back? My friends, we see here in 1 Thessalonians 5 the suddenness of Christ coming a sudden appearance, bringing sudden destruction to those who are outside of Christ. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And now, our Father, we pray that thy Holy Spirit would take these words, would apply them graciously and decisively in the heart of everyone here, Lord, thou dost see us. Thou dost know us better than we know ourselves. We are naked before thee. And we pray, Father, that thy Holy Spirit would work powerfully in our midst here this night, this afternoon, 
We pray for anyone who does not know Christ, that that person would have no rest until he or she rests in Christ. And so accomplish this, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. In closing, please turn to Psalm 54b. The 54th Psalm, 54 Selection B. It's on your large print sheets as well. As in your soldiers. 54B. By your name, O God, now save me. Grant me justice by your strength. Notice on the second stanza of the second line, to my foes he pays back evil in your truth. Destroy them all. The Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus someday will. Let us sing praise to him for his justice. Psalm 54, Selection B. By your name, O God, now save me. Grant me justice by your strength. To these words of mine give answer, O my God, now hear my prayer. Strangers have come up against me, even men of my old hands, and they seek my life's destruction. God is not within their thoughts. See how God has been my helper, how my Lord sustains my soul. To my foes he pays back evil, in your truth destroy them all. I will sacrifice with gladness. I will praise your name, O Lord. He has saved me from all trouble. I have looked on all my foes. Receive God's blessing. After that, we will sing Psalm 72, Selection C, the last uh, two stanzas of that, but right now receive God's blessing. Now may grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit rest and abide upon each one of you now and forevermore. Amen. 72C, the last two stanzas. Now blessed be our God alone. Now blessed be our God alone, Jehovah God of Israel, for only he has wonders done, his deeds in glory far excel, his deeds in glory far excel. And blessed be his glorious name, long as the ages shall endure, or all the earth extend his fame. Amen, amen, forevermore. Amen, amen, forevermore.
Go in peace, my friends. Thank you all for being on. I'll have a turn this over to Nancy. Were we supposed to say, see? Oops. No. Did you turn that? Not yet. Sorry about that. Sorry.